My name is David Vaughn. Welcome on a cold January day. Oh my goodness. Good morning here in the room. Give yourself a hand for showing up today. That's all I'm saying. Well done. And those of you watching online, especially wherever you are, north, south, east, or west, we welcome you among us. COVID is running amok among us. So a couple things. Could we just pray for each other? Because a lot of people are being affected by this. Number two, a lot of people have pivoted to online because of that. And I am so grateful for the staff, the technology, the, the uh, mechanism, the system we have in place to be able to, to broadcast and to preach and to share worship service. Let's give it up for those folks that work hard, get here early to make uh, online church happen. In spite of COVID, I just got to tell you right now, in spite of that, I'm still riding high. I'm still basking in the euphoria of Christmas Eve celebration. Some of you are still coming. Your first time you came to Whitewater was Christmas Eve. Welcome back. Some of you, you still got perfect attendance, even with COVID, you know, second week. Yay, God. I want to tell you that our Christmas Eve offering now stands, totally benevolent offering. We give it away, $96,074. Wow. And you know, that really ticks me off that it's not yet a hundred. There's something in my spirit. So maybe there's somebody that wasn't here on Christmas Eve said, Dad, I don't like that either. I'm going to put 4,000 in the offering today. We will humbly accept that from you. So anyway, wherever you're watching from and wherever you, age or stage you are in, uh, we are glad you're here. If you are, have been with us the last few weeks since Christmas Eve, JT was doing some serious vision casting last Sunday. I hope you were paying attention. It was more than a message. It was really the beginning of this year like no other of us hearing his heart, and I loved it. I especially liked his emphasis, uh, which I have always thought was really my passion as well. I love his emphasis on seeing our wonderful church through the lens, the eyes of people who have no church experience or those who what they did have was poor. As I have often said here many times, I want to be the kind of church where whiskey drinking, skirt chasing, profanity lacing, card carrying hellbound heathens can show up. That's what I want. And I can tell you, that's what JT wants. And I love that. He's taking that mantle on just wonderfully. So our current series is called Invited, and we are inviting you, no matter where you started, no matter where you are on the spiritual continuum, whether it's just beginning Christmas Eve, whether you've been following Jesus a long time, we're inviting all of you in, in this year of preparation and transition, to join us in a life of community and relationship and mission. And as JT mentioned, when the series is over, we plan to have this giant commitment moment where we are going to ask you to RSVP. Uh, after you hear the mission, the vision, the strategy, where we're going, the core values of the church, here in three or four weeks, we're going to say, we're going to ask you, uh, are you in? Are you out? Or I have questions. That's cool. We've been answering a few of those. And I want to invite you to start praying now about being all in for the next amazing and exciting chapter ahead of us that JT and our team are leading. Our mission's not going to change. Our vision's not going to change. People wonder what is happening with, with the you know, senior minister succession, transition. Will any of that change? Well, that's why this series is coming out. That's why we're so excited about this series, to tell you what's changing, what's not. None of that's a change. The strategy has to change, though, folks. 
If you'd have told me two years ago that we would have had a worldwide pandemic, we didn't have a strategy for that. We do now, so that will always change. But the core values of our church will remain the same. You need to hear that. JT and I are committed to certain things, and that's what you're hearing us talk about. And in this current invited series, we're going to share our core values as a church so you know what you're committing to. I mean, you got to know why you're committing to it, but what you're committing to. And the one that I get the privilege of focusing on and teaching on today is one of my favorites, why we obey the Bible. Why this book? Why do we hold this in such high esteem? And I am inviting you today to obey the Bible with us for all kinds of reasons. Every year, the chairman of the religion department at Boston University gives his undergraduate students uh, a 15-question quiz about the Bible. And every year, they fail. I, would you like to kind of give it a try, maybe just in a little bit? I, I'm not going to put you through the whole test. Just a couple of questions to see if you know the answers, okay? Are you game? No shade, no shame. If you get zero on this test, I'll be proud of you, okay? No, don't worry about that. If you get six, I might be a little more proud. But anyway, get out your phone, get out a piece of paper. This is going to go quick, okay? Some of you, this is like a piece of cake. Others are like, oh, okay, test. I didn't know we are going to have a test at church today. Number one, here's on the test. Name the four Gospels. What are the, don't say it out loud. Just kind of write it down, say it to yourself. What are the four? I'm going to give you the answers in just a minute. What are the four Gospels? Number two, question on this quiz. Where, according to the Bible, was Jesus born? Now, come on. This is on the heels of Christmas. This is like an easy, easy one for you. Where, according to the Bible, was Jesus born? Number three, what are the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament? We're going to talk about the Testaments in just a minute. First five books, and I'll give you a clue to the first one, Genesis. <laughs> See, I'm a, such a good teacher. You already got the one. Number four, what is the golden rule? It's not he who has the most gold rules, okay? It's not it. What is the golden rule? Number five, be careful now, God helps those who help themselves. What book of the Bible is this in, and who said it? God helps those who help themselves. And then last question, how many books of the Bible are there? And here's a bonus. If you can name the number in the old and the exact number in the new, you get extra credit, extra coffee in the landing today. Okay, those are the six. That's just six of them. Let me see how you did. You ready? Four Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Remember those. I'm going to give you a, a challenge from Luke in just a minute. Number two, where was Jesus born? Jesus born in Bethlehem. What a great class. Number three, first five books of the Old Testament are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Well done. Some of y'all like, I didn't know any of those, even the one you told me, David. Great. Uh, great. Well done. Some of y'all had Sunday school, I can remember, or catechism class. You know, something here. Number four, the golden rule is do unto others as they do unto you. No, no, that's not it. Some of y'all are living that way, but anyway, no. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Number five, God helps those who help themselves. This is, this is a trick question. I apologize. That's not in the Bible. Some of y'all may have thought it was. Those words are from Benjamin Franklin, not Jesus or anybody. 
I had to throw something in, you know. It's true. Maybe it should be in the Bible, but I don't know. Number six, how many books of the Bible are there? 66 books in the Bible. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. All right. Now, those of you watching online, put that in the chat. Put that in the online chat. Like, how many did you get? How many got one right out of the six? Could I? Don't. How many got two? How many got three? Four? How many got all six right? Well, we're going to invite you all up here to teach next week. Anyway, <laughs> maybe not. Well done. Now, my goal in this, as is, was the goal of the guy who, get, who gives this survey every year, why, why, why does the chairman of the religion department of Boston University give a test every year on this? Same reason I wanted to kind of jump in to give you a test on it as well. He says it's because, and the reason I'm doing it, is because everybody should know the basics of the Bible. Even if you don't fully believe in the Bible, believe what the Bible says, or the principles in this book, you may not believe them, but they have literally changed and shaped human civilization and made life a ton better. Even if you're a skeptic, you, it's undeniable that these principles have shaped culture. Our country was not founded by all great men, but let me tell you, our country was founded on the principles in this book, whether you agree with them or not. And the reason our culture is so whacked out, messed up, I would propose to you, even if you don't believe all the Bible, it's because we're not living up to this high standard. It's not elevated anymore. He says everybody should know the basics of the Bible. I think that too. Now, I don't want to assume that you know anything about this precious book. So today, I'm just, my goal is to kind of put the cookies on the lower shelf so everybody can get one, everybody can eat one. I want to put the cookies on the lower shelf and give you an introductory primer to this wonderful book. And I want to start with some basic things that you should know about your Bible, about this Bible. Everybody's probably got a Bible. You may not have dusted it off in a while, but you got one. This is the best-selling book of all time. It's the bestseller every year. In the last couple of years with the COVID and epidemic, it's elevated even more. Do you know this book that you hold or I hold in my hand? Let me give you a couple of fundamentals. Number one, the Bible is a library. Library. It's not a single book. It's combined as a single book, but it is a collection of books, 66 to be exact, written by more than 40 authors. It covers a period of 1,500 years. Most of the books here bear the name of the author, and they're pretty straightforward. You got Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or Matthew or John. Those are the names of the guys that wrote the book. Some other books, though, carry the name of the main event that the Bible, that book talks about. Genesis, as we mentioned, is the book of beginnings. If you want to know how everything began, according to a Christian worldview, look in Genesis 1.1. Back to the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. <laughs> you realize, right, everything about life, everything about your life or the next life is contained in that very first thing. Either that is true or that is not. In the beginning, God created heaven. Everything pivots on that one. And you ought to figure out in your own life, do I believe that or do I not? If that's not true, then what are we doing? We have a Christian worldview that that is true. 
Exodus talks about the, the, the transition of God's people, the exodus, the departure of God's people from bondage to freedom. Some books in this Bible carry the name of the recipient of the, the book or the letter. So, for instance, you have Philippians or Galatians or Ephesians. Those were letters to real churches, real people in real cities in the New Testament. And so that's where they come from. So the Bible is not just a book. It's many books combined into one. It's a library of books reflecting different times in history, different authors, different settings with a different emphasis. All with, well, you're going to hear me say it later, all with one constant theme. And that theme is surrounding a person. So the Bible is a library. Number two thing I want to tell you, number two alert, number two announcement, the Bible has two testaments, two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the new section. The Old Testament is a little thicker, a little bigger. Here in my Bible, it takes up about that much, pretty thick. You know, and this is where people get messed up, because most of us start in Genesis 1-1, it's pretty good, but we quit when we get to the begats. There's a bunch of boring stuff in that Old Testament, unless you really kind of can read it, talk about it in a minute. But there's the Old Testament, the New Testament. The word testament, don't get hung up on that. It simply means agreement or covenant. The Old Testament is a record of God's agreements with his people before Jesus, and the New Testament is God's record of agreements when Jesus came and after he's going to come again. You'll notice what divides the Old Testament and the New is what I said before. What divides it is a man. His name is Jesus. Jesus still, by the way, divides. Either you're for him or you're against him. Either he's Lord or he's a liar or he's a lunatic. In fact, we divide our entire measurement of time, not just the Bible, our measurement of time is divided, B.C. and A.D., by the man Jesus. I once got in a little debate with an atheist uh, a couple years ago, and I said, you know what? I said, uh, you, you're even acknowledging Jesus as Lord. You don't even know it by the way you sign your checks. He said, what are you talking about? I'll never give you any money. I said, that's great. I said, do you date your checks? He said, yeah. I said, well, you're just acknowledging B.C., A.D., even our whole dating system is predicated on Jesus. He didn't like that very much. I said, don't put dates in if you don't want to do it. There is a dividing line, and his name is Jesus. The Old Testament builds towards the new. The New Testament fulfills the old. And it's all a crescendo that says Jesus is coming. In fact, if you, let me give you a quick summary of the whole Bible. It's, it's simple. In the Old Testament, the message is a king is coming, a Messiah is coming, Jesus is coming. It's throughout, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, Jesus is here. He's walking among us. Romans to uh, Revelation, Jesus is coming again. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the king. To use another analogy, let's use a movie analogy of the Old and New Testament and what I'm talking about with this theme. Some of y'all like the Lord of the Rings. Some of y'all like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Okay, some of y'all watch more movies than you read the Bible, but that's another story. Anyway, if you think of the Old Testament as the Fellowship of the Ring, followed by the two towers, and then the New Testament, it's kind of like the final installment, the return of the king, that might explain the Bible to you. If you don't like Lord of the Rings, forget I said any of that. But... Like the Lord of the Rings, everything in the Bible is about the king. 
except his name is Jesus, not Aragorn. And while the Bible has 66 books and two testaments, there's one thread, one story, one person that runs throughout the story of the king. John 1 talks about this one true king. A lot of people don't know this. We think of God the Father being the one that created everything. Listen to what John says. It's Jesus who did that. In the beginning, he says, was the Word, and the Word is not just the written Word, it's the living person Word of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, through Him, through Jesus. All things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that had been made. Do you understand? When Jesus, as a baby, opened up His eyes that first Christmas day that we just celebrated and looked up at the stars, He looked at the stars that He Himself made it's, it's fascinating. It's mind-blowing. And it says, the Word, verse 14, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So the Bible is a library. Number two, the Bible, let me review, Bible's a library. Number two, the Bible has two testaments, old and new. But the one person, the one theme, the one thread that runs through it all, Jesus Christ. The third headline and third piece of the primer I want to give you is the one I want to spend the most time on this morning, because this is the one that is most at risk in our day. Number three, the Bible is sacred and divinely inspired. When you hold holy writ in your hand, you are holding a miracle in your hand. Christians take the writing of the Bible as the Word of God for multiple reasons, but one big reason sticks out. It's the same reason I gave you for all of the Bible. It's Jesus. Jesus saw the Bible. Jesus saw the Old Testament as God-inspired. And if Jesus says something is sacred, then let me tell you something. I'm going to call it sacred. I'm going to view it as Scripture and sacred. He said this in Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth, Jesus said, will pass away. But my words will never pass away. My truth will never pass away. Fascinating tidbit of history for some of you history buffs. In AD 303, Roman Emperor Diocletian proclaimed that every copy of the scriptures that he could get a hold of was to be destroyed. Because so powerful, so dangerous in his mind was the Bible. And thousands of Christians were martyred for possessing copies of the Scripture. You take this so lightly. People have been burned at the stake so you could read the Bible in the English language. Unbelievable. But two years later, Diocletian thought he had succeeded. He erected a victory column over the ashes of all those burned copies of the Scripture, and he put this on the inscription, Extinct is the name of Christians. Didn't happen. 21 years later, actually, another emperor came to power. His name was Constantine. He converted to Christianity and proclaimed Christianity to be the religion of the entire Roman Empire. Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 35 remain true. There have been dictators and potentates and all kinds of people who tried to rid the earth of this Bible. But Jesus' words stand. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. See, Jesus believed the Bible to be sacred and inspired, and he referenced lots of real people in the Old Testament, David and Jonah and Moses. That's why I believe in those folks, because Jesus believed in those folks. (laughs) 
He then commissioned, Jesus did, his closest followers, who were then called apostles, to be his good news tellers, and through the Holy Spirit inspired them to write their own accurate and truthful accounts of what they saw and heard as eyewitnesses. And that's what you see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all of the letters in the New Testament. They were inspired because Jesus was inspired. So here's my point. You are welcome to reject Jesus and reject the Bible. You can do that at your own peril, in my opinion. But you're welcome to reject Jesus and the Bible. What you can't do is accept Jesus and reject the Bible. Because Jesus tells us that the Bible is God's revelation. Here's what he says in John 8, 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. The truth. What and where is truth right now for you? See, Pilate asked that same question of Jesus 2,000 years ago. It's the greatest question ever. It's tied to this. What is truth? Is this truth or is it not? Because people are still asking this question, what is truth? In a day of fake news and false information, nobody trusts anybody's word anymore as truth. I mean, look at all of the confusion. Look at all of the, the fighting. Look at all of the disagreement about what is true about the vaccine or not, mask or not, the epidemic or not. Everybody creates their own truth. We don't even trust doctors who've been treating us in our own lives for years to tell us the truth. We don't think they're right anymore. I don't understand that. What is truth? See, and I think the same thing, it's just indicative. What you're hearing and seeing about this debate that is raging and divided the church and our country is that we are having a serious conversation about where is any kind of truth and does absolute truth exist? Absolutely. Driven by a postmodern era that rejects absolute truth, absolute truth, more and more people have questions about the origins, the relevance, the authority of the scriptures. This steady rise of skepticism is creating, in my opinion, a cultural atmosphere that is becoming unfriendly, sometimes even hostile, to the claims of faith. And in a society that venerates science and rationalism, it is, increase, it is an increasingly hard pill to swallow that an eclectic assortment of ancient stories, poems, prophecies, and letters written and compiled over the course of 3,000 years is somehow the sacred word of God. It does take some faith, but you don't have to put your brain on the shelf to believe that this is the truth of God. But tragically, with each passing year, the percentage of Americans who believe that the Bible is just another book written by men increases and their value of the Bible decreases. So too does the perception, it increases, that the Bible is actually harmful and that people who live by its principles are some kind of religious extremist. I would propose to you that the new religion of our day is tolerance. That's the truth of our day. Tolerance falsely defined as putting all propositions on an equal footing as opposed to giving ideas an equal hearing, putting all truths on an equal footing has replaced truth. Let me tell you what the new truth is. Everybody defines their own truth. It's my truth. You hear people say that all the time, especially young people. It's my truth. Now, I want to 
illustrate the absurd with the absurd. Today is a significant day. I bet you don't know this. I'm going to give you a little history that's not just Bible history. Today is a significant day in Cincinnati sports history. Are you aware of this? Not just because the Bengals are playing the Browns, not just because they might make it to the playoffs and maybe win. Tomorrow, January 10th, marks the date exactly 40 years ago when the Bengals won a playoff game, and it was called the Freezer Bowl. And anybody grew up in Cincinnati remember the Freezer Bowl? It makes you feel old, doesn't it? 40 years ago? Any of you there? Any of you there? Man, they've done polls. They've, if everybody who was there who says they were there, it'd be like 500,000 people. They won't make it. Here's a picture of it. It was a huge victory. It was the 1982 AFC Championship game against the Chargers. It sent the Bengals to their first Super Bowl. The Bengals were led by Coach Forrest Gray, MVP quarterback Ken Anderson. The Bengals dominated the Freezer Bowl game, 27-7. to It was who day? The temperatures at Riverfront Stadium on January 10th, 1982 for that game were minus 59 degrees with wind chill. Minus 59. Some of y'all thought it was cold the last couple of days. Nah. The Freezer Bowl was one of the coldest games in NFL history. I watched it inside, but I watched it. Unfortunately, the Bengals would later fall to Joe Montana and the San Francisco 49ers in Super Bowl 16. I watched that too. But let's say just for discussion purpose, just theoretically. Let's say I didn't like that the Bengals lost that Super Bowl game and decided to write a book myself about how the Bengals won Super Bowl 16 27-7, the way that God originally intended it to go. <laughs> let, let, let's say that I cited all kinds of made-up stats and self-published it as an accurate, truthful depiction and account of the game. Besides getting fired and getting put away as some kind of crazy person, would that alone make my statement or my case truthful? Just because I said it. But it's my truth. I have decided that I will live like they won. <laughs> Who are you to judge me and tell me that I'm wrong? I feel inside that they won. This is so true. Never mind that it would be swiftly denounced, especially by 49ers fans. My buddy Jim Breach, who's a field goal kicker for the Bengals, which I golf with occasionally, he, he wouldn't say, David, uh, I was there. It didn't happen that way. Never mind that the truth that the Bengals lost goes against decades of other credible writings to the contrary throughout history the last 40 years, or that 85 million people watched Super Bowl 16 on TV themselves. They knew otherwise. See, you can arrive at absolute truth. It does exist, and you can bank your life on it. You are already making decisions on whether you think something is absolute truth. It can be discovered. So this matter today could not be more crucial for you to research yourself. Don't take my word for it. Check out what I'm saying today. Decide if this book contains the truth or not. Is Jesus who he said he was, or is he not? I mean, he's a dividing line. You can't be uh, ambivalent. You can't be squishy about Jesus in the Bible. And I just got to tell you, based on my lifetime of research and study, 
I believe with all my heart that everything in here is true and inspired by God. So does JT, by the way, and you ought to be very thankful for that. See, either Hebrews 4, 12 is true or it's not. For the Word of God is alive. It's not dead. You know, most reasons people don't read the Bible, it's too big and it's too old, they think. It's not dead. It's not that big. You're going to find it in a minute. It's alive. It's active. It's old, but it's as new as the headlines today. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You ever wonder why you come in church, you hear a message from me or JT or someone teaching, and you kind of feel a little guilty about it? That's the truth of God. That's not us offending you. In fact, our... We hope we don't offend you. If the Bible offends you, you're just going to have to get over it. Take it up with God. Either this is true or not. So let me ask you a question. What do you consider to be your most trusted source for truth? Are there any sources you trust less? Why or why not? See, everybody has a faith system, even atheism. To what extent would you say you have actually thought through from a logical standpoint, not just the heart, but the head, you've thought through your own belief system. It requires faith, whatever system you decide you're going to abide by. It requires faith to distrust the Bible as it is to trust it. Even if you deconstruct your faith, which is a hip thing to do by hipster spiritual leaders today, you still have to construct something else to build your life on. <clears throat> I've said it multiple times here. Even if this is not true, even if there is no Jesus, even if there is no heaven or hell, I still believe it's the best way to live to have effective happiness in this life. I still believe it. And I believe there is a next life that this book talks about. You never know how important a truth is until your life or death here and in the next world depends on it. And this is an important question for you to answer today the truth. Is this the truth or not? Because whatever you choose to believe as truth leads to authority in your life. Authority. They, you allow that truth to tell you right or wrong, yes or no, what you do and what you don't do. So who do you claim as the authority of your life? What is authoritative in your life? See, I believe our problem today, again, this is an old bald dude's opinion, our problem today is hubris. We don't want to submit to a higher authority like the Bible or admit that God knows better. We actually think in our civilization that we know more than God just because we're a little smarter than others in human history. <laughs> Man has always thought they knew better than God. So you don't really so much break God's laws, you break yourself when you break God's laws. But David, what about the parts of the Bible that are so obscure and difficult? Yeah, there are some parts you've got to dig a little deeper in. Some parts when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, what do you mean by that? But you know what? Honestly, it's not the parts that I don't understand that are giving me trouble. It's the parts that are very clear that I'm not obeying that I do understand that are giving me trouble. But David, what about all those lost books of the Bible that we hear sometimes about that are found? The Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, I, I, I so wish I had time, more time to unpack this. Even back then, they were uniformly understood to be forgeries and 
false in their information. And most were written two to 300 years after the time that their alleged authors even lived. It was kind of like rewriting Super Bowl 16. That's why they were never accepted or uh, placed as part of the original 66 books called the canon that we now have. And if I had time to speak with you more, I could talk to you about the Bible's textual credibility, the huge, reliable, incredible amount of facts and reliability that it has. For example, did you know that there are only nine or ten really good copies or manuscripts of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars in existence today, the oldest of which is a copy dating about 900 years after his time? But no historian that I'm aware of has serious doubts about the reality of Caesar or the integrity of his text. There are fewer than ten existing copies of the ancient manuscripts of Plato available to study, but we accept Plato's wisdom and writing as real. But when it comes to the Bible, there are more than 5,000 authenticated handwritten copies and manuscripts in the Greek language that support what the New Testament says, 5,000 alone, that ensures the accuracy of its writings, some written within 25 to 50 years, that close after they really occurred. And don't get me started on the Old Testament, which is equally richly supported by the findings of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You ought to check out these Dead Sea Scrolls. They're still finding them. Copies representing almost every book of the Old Testament. And what you hold in your hand is exactly what was written thousands of years ago from those copies of the Dead Sea Scrolls. There has been no mess up. There has been no error. Without a doubt, the Bible is the most documented ancient writing in all of history. I could spend hours regaling you about the Bible's historical credibility. Cities, people, places in the Bible that it references and mentions that for years people scoffed at because they didn't find any proof are now daily, yearly being unearthed and confirmed through archaeology exactly like the Bible says. It's fascinating. I'm here to tell you, you don't have to put your brain on the shelf to trust and take God at his word. But don't take my word for it. Look at the evidence itself. Reach your own conclusion. See if you don't think there is a better way to live, and it's found here. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, there is a section that I think is profoundly powerful and applicable to us right here at Whitewater. Not just the world, but us. Timothy was written by a guy named Paul to a young protege. And here's what he says. It applies to us. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Uh, If you were brought up, many of us were not, but if you were brought up by a godly mom and dad that had you in Harbortown and had you in a children's ministry and taught you the Scriptures at home, you're, you're blessed. How from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And here's the descriptor. All Scripture, not some, all of it is God-breathed. It means inspired and is useful for teaching. That's fun. Rebuking. That's not so much fun that I get to do. Correcting. Kind of fun. And training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped. That's me and you. For every good work. And then the beginning of the next chapter has 
My job description. Some of y'all say, I wonder what you've been up to all these 20 years. What is your job? Here's my job. And by the way, this is JT's job description too. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. You know why I'm so nervous up here every week? It's not because I'm worried about what you think. I'm worried about what he thinks. He's going to ask me, David, did you do what I told you? Did you say what I told you to say by my word? Not your word, not your opinion, my word. It's a dangerous thing. It's a scary thing, a nerve-wracking thing to speak for God. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge, and I give it to JT. Preach the word. The word, this, not opinions, not just statistics, not cultural ideas. Preach the word. I'm so glad he does. Be prepared in season and out of season, when it's cold and when it's hot, when it's winter and when it's summer. When there's COVID and when there's not, regardless, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, that's his job. Encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come. I predict to you that time is here. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine or truth. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear, not what they need to hear, what they want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth, there's our word, and turn aside to myths. But you, JT, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. I love that. He and I both, our hearts beat fast for lost people. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Friend, that's how sacred and high a calling it is to teach. And many of you are teaching in many ways beyond, you don't have to have a pulpit to teach the word of God in season and out of season. See, the Bible is food. It really is food that feeds your soul. There is the milk of the word, the beginning stuff, like babies have, and then there's the meat of the word. Some of y'all been on milk for a long, long time. Why don't you start eating some meat? Some people say, I'm just not fed. You're just not feeding me. Sometimes they say that when they leave the church. Well, you know, here's an idea. Why don't you grow up enough to start feeding yourself for a change? Just a thought. Just a thought. I can say anything. It's my last six, seven months. I didn't Buckle your seatbelt, that's all I'm saying. There is something for everyone along the spiritual continuum. In fact, the best research has found that reading and reflecting on Scripture is the most spiritually catalytic activity you can engage in. That's it. If you did nothing else than read the Bible and pray, your spiritual life would go through the roof. That's why I think Satan's greatest effort, I've known it all along, is to keep you out of the Word of God in prayer. Sometimes people will buy a book for someone for a a present or baptism or Christmas, and they'll ask me to sign my name in the front of the book. Can I just tell you how scary that is? You don't want my name. There's a lot of other inspired guys' names in here. But when I am forced to do so, I'll put to the Jane or Joe or whoever, and I'll write this phrase, this book will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from this book. 
Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. You're involved in a whole lot of stuff. When's the last time you picked this up? Blew off the dust and said, God, this is your truth. I accept it and I'll apply it. So how does a person actually do this? I'm so glad you asked. I don't have a lot of time. I just want to give you some simple Bible hacks. Again, assuming you know nothing. Number one, read the Bible daily. Every day. I don't care if it's just a verse. Every day. Do you eat daily? Probably. You think about it. More than once a day. Dine on this spiritual bread daily. Jeremiah says, when your words came, I ate them, and they were my joy and my heart's delight. Read it every day regardless of how you feel. Number two, read the Bible intentionally with a plan. Timothy, Paul also says to Timothy, do your best to present yourselves as a workman approved of God who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. So don't be casual. I met with a guy one time and he said, hey, uh, I'm having trouble reading the Bible. I don't get anything out of it. I said, well, tell me how you're reading. He said, well, I pick up my Bible in the morning and I just kind of open it up. And I say, God, guide me to what you want me to read today. And I stick my finger there and I think God guides me and that's what I do and that's what I read. Now, I'm not saying God can't do that, but I said, here's what might happen. That's a bad, poor method. You might open your Bible one day and your finger lands on the verse, Judas went out and hung himself. And then you flip it again and you find the verse, go and do thou likewise. And then you, whatever you do, do quickly. I mean, you could uh, have a plan. Number three, read the Bible practically. The Bible was written for you. It's not about information, it's about transformation. The greatest compliment that I get over my 20 years, by the way, is when people come out and say, David, you make the Bible just seem so real and practical. It's not boring. It's it's so true. Preachers can make the Bible boring, but it's not boring. It's such a compliment for you to say to me and JT, you must be living in my house. You must be dipping into my phone conversation, my texting. How did you know I was dealing with that? The Word of God is active, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So when you read the Bible, ask yourself two questions. What does it mean, and what does it mean to me? To me? What does it mean to me today? One great tool that can help with this, by the way, is to just get a modern version or translation of the Bible that you can understand. Some of us, some of you, grew up studying the King James Version of the Bible. It's great. For a while, that was the only translation around. But can I just say to you, you don't speak like 1611 English anymore. I mean, think of the language changes that have just we've occurred and uh, that have occurred and that we've accepted in just the last decade. Wicked used to be something bad. Now it's like good. Somebody went out and searched it. David, that was a wicked sermon. You just—I think that was a compliment. <laughs> Spam used to be canned meat or, or something like meat. Whatever it was, you ate it instead of deleting it from your email inbox. Coke was a drug, was a drink, not a drug. If someone was hot, they were warm. And your booty was your treasure. I don't even know how to recover from that. Anyway, friend, the language of our world has changed. So get yourself a new international version of the Bible, a new American standard, a new living version. Jump in. I don't care. You know what the best translation is? The one you read. Get the U version Bible app. 
I'm a big fan of version. So many uh, plans they have. Set notifications for daily Bible verses. As you leave, we encourage you to get a Bible. There's some out there on the tables. You can go to the info desk and get it. There's a great little bookmark, that, uh, uh, QR code, how to read the Bible. Start here, first steps with Jesus. There's so many resources out here to help you. You have no excuse. People say, well, I just don't have time. Mm-hmm. It's your lie. Tell it how you want. You do exactly what you want to do and read what you want to read. Number three, read the Bible silently or even out loud. The average person reads 250 to 300 words per minute. And at 300 words per minute, you could read the entire Bible in just 42 hours. Don't tell me you don't have time. Maybe you don't like to read. I get that. Listen to the word on an app or on a CD. Faith comes from hearing the word of God, it says. The last thing I'm going to tell you is this, read the Bible in community, in accountability with someone else. When you have someone checking on you and each of you are reading the Bible or you sit down together as a couple and read the Bible, it gives you a chance to discuss it. And all of you young people listening here today, here's to find out if that person that you're dating is the one for you, one more sign, ask them to read the Bible with you and see what they say. Just ask them. It'll kind of divide whether they believe and might lead to a discussion about whether they believe it or not. And you probably need to know that before you get married. I heard someone say a gentleman opens the door for her, but a godly man opens the word with her. And I haven't always done a good job with that, even with my own wife. Friend, we are stronger when we're better together in community. Now, one caveat and caution here, I'm channeling my inner JT because I know this is what he would say too. Just because you know the Bible doesn't mean you're like that you're the super duper super Christian, right? It doesn't mean you have arrived. The scribes and the Pharisees knew the Bible, the law up and down, but they missed Jesus. They didn't act like Jesus. In fact, they use it as a weapon to hit people arrogantly across the head and judge them. That's not the goal. The goal is not to get you through the Bible. It's to get the Bible through you. I'd rather you read one verse and just memorize that and live it out all week than to read the whole chapter or the whole book and then just go on like it never affected you. But the authority and the truth of the Bible is a tool that you are to use. It's a lens of humble wisdom to help you look at life and people as God would. So just because you know a lot of the Bible doesn't mean that God knows a lot about you or that you know a lot about God. It doesn't make you a, a better Christian. It makes you a smarter Christian. So you got to have this, though. And that's why we invite you to join us in this pursuit of biblical truth. If you're going to be on mission with us and in relationship and community with us at Whitewater, you absolutely need to know that one of our core values is that we do Bible things in Bible ways. That will never change no matter who your senior minister is, and I'm thankful for that. Friend, we love you. I really do. But we care more about what God says than about what you say. If we didn't, we would be in deep trouble here because I've got everybody telling me and JT what to do these last two years. The first question we ask as leaders is not what do the people think, what does Jesus think? What does the Bible think? 
Not what does the culture say, not as what, what does Fox say, what does CNN say, what does tradition say, not even what David or JT say. What does God say through his unchangeable, unalterable, eternal, inspired word that will never go away? I meet people all the time and say, David, I just love for God to speak to me. Hello, he has, he will, he is right here. But sadly, this food is right in front of people, and they're starving to death. Let me end with one final scripture. I read it with sadness because I believe this prophecy of Amos, an Old Testament guy, has come to pass today in your hearing. Here's what Amos says. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I, when I will send a famine through the land. Now, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger. How tragic is this? They will stagger from sea to sea, wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, the truth of the Lord, but they will not find it. Is that not the greatest tragedy ever, that people are on a quest, they're famished for truth and the word and they can't find it? I commit to you, you will always find it here. And in this day, you will not always find truth in every church. That's the saddest thing of all. People are searching. There's never been a greater time for people to have a conversation about what is truth, who is Jesus, why is all this happening to me, than it is right now. So, friend, I'm inviting you to be a part of solving this problem. And you solve it by your giving, by your serving, by your reading the Bible for yourself, and you inviting everyone you know to start reading this book. And that's why we're inviting all of you to join us here in a life of relationship, community, mission, and obedience based on what the Bible says. JT will be back next week to talk about the second core value, why we glorify God and what is biblical worship. <laughs> Buckle your seatbelt. That's all I'm going to say. I want to encourage you to take a friendly challenge with me this week. The Gospel of Luke is one of the most powerful stories of Jesus, recording all of what he said and did, mo most of what he said and did. The other Gospels have parts, and some are repeated, called synoptic Gospels. In fact, the Bible says if, that if there were if we wrote down everything that Jesus said and did, the, the world couldn't contain the books therein. But Luke is a great descriptor summary. It only has 24 chapters. I challenge you to read one chapter a day for the next 24 days from the Gospel of Luke and see if the words of the Scripture are more true or less true for you than you are today, than they are today. I challenge you to read it for 24 days and see if God doesn't speak to you about something in going on in your life in that period. You've got nothing to lose. You have everything to gain. Grab one of those Bibles, find one online, and see if the truth does not set you free. Friend, this is the authority of my life. I don't always abide by it. I wish I obeyed it flawlessly every time. But I'm gonna tell you, in a world that does not elevate this, this church will always be committed to saying, that's the word of God. And we invite you to join us in committing to that.